0: Welcome to episode 127 of the Fabulously Keto podcast and today I'm interviewing Angela Stanton. Now one of our listeners, Nicola Locke, has been asking me to get Angela on and I eventually managed to connect with her. So thank you Nicola for keep on pestering me to get her on. Let me tell you about Angela. Angela A. Stanton PhD has Earned her doctorate in neuroeconomics, experimental neuroscience using economic models and also FMRI certified. Having earned the following degrees, Ph.D. Claremont Graduate University in economics with dissertation in neuroscience, FMRI certification at Harvard University. this is a good word, Athenula A. Martinos Center for Biomedical Imaging, MS in Management Science and Engineering, Stanford University, MBA at University of California, Riverside, BSc Mathematics at UCLA. Her doctoral research focused on understanding how human decision making is influenced by neurotransmitter changes She ran clinical trial experiments, gaining an appreciation of the role of the role hormones play in emotional and physiological decisions. A lifelong migraine sufferer in 2008, she took early retirement from her academic position and has been an avid researcher in the field of migraines. Her efforts of understanding the cause of migraines have been assisted by thousands of migraine sufferers around the world. In 2014, she published the first and in 2017, the second edition of the book Fighting the Migraine Epidemic Complete Guide How to Treat and Prevent Migraines Without Medicines that established her as a leader in the field of migraine research based on nutrition and electrolyte management. She now teaches migraine sufferers and healthcare providers all over the world about how to abort and prevent migraines without any medicine. This is a really long interview, but it's absolutely fascinating and I hope you enjoy it and stay with it. Welcome Dr. Angela Stanton to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today.
2: Very nice to you inviting me. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. Um, I have been asked several times by one particular person who I am going to mention, uh, one of our great listeners and um, one of our moderators in our Facebook group, Nicola Locke. So she is always beaming about you and how wonderful you are and that we should get you on. So I eventually managed to do that.
2: Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to her.
0: <laughs> yeah. And she saw you on a Nutrition Network video. So um, she saw you through that as well. So we always start with where in the world are you?
2: I'm in Southern California, which normally is a desert and it isn't supposed to ever rain, but we're in the middle of a storm where it's raining. So There we are, Southern California.
0: Southern, okay, great. Let's start by going, because there's so much. I mean, you've sent me your book to have a read of the the second edition. When's that
2: coming out? The second edition is the one that you're reading. Third edition is going to be coming out. uh, Probably, well, it was supposed to have come out already, but I'm delayed because there's just too many members in the group. So I'm hoping that this year will be the year that it's going to come out.
0: Fabulous. So I'm reading edition two. Fabulous. And um, so I'm really excited about today and and the stuff that we're going to talk about. Um, But why don't you start by telling us how you came to low carb, keto, carnivore? I know you do a mixture of all the things, but how did you find it originally?
2: Completely coincidentally by accident, because um, I wasn't looking in the area of nutrition at all. I was looking only in the area of migraine. And studying through migraines, um, and I discussed this also in the book, I bumped into uh, a random page that opened up at one point, which showed a cell. And that was after already years of frustrated work, of reading all academic articles on migraine, um, books on migraine, anything I could get my hand on migraine, but I never got anywhere because migraine is really very poorly defined. And the only thing that they have is medications. And having been a migraineur all my life from early teens, none of those medications ever worked. And so I wanted to find a solution other than medication. And being a scientist, I said, I'm going to find this. I just have to find this solution. And it was completely by accident that I bumped into the picture of the cell, which then showed me what was in the cell and started to discuss about cellular functions. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, there's food here. There's nutrients that have to get into the cell and have to come out of the cell So what's the connection of nutrition? So that is how I started to even get not just not yet to the full nutrition scope in terms of low carb or high carb or or whatever kind of ketogenic or a carnivore diet, but just to understand the importance of nutrients. And then once I understood that, then it was a no-brainer to go further because it automatically sort of kind of leads you in that direction once you understand. I read the history of how we ended up with all these high-carbohydrate diets. If you read um, some of the books, like Nina T. Scholes's Big Fat Surprise was one of the first books that I read. And um, there was another one from, I think it was... Um, by, by dr Williams, that was about grain brain or or uh, uh, like that, we we it. Right. Yeah. that yeah. one and so that sort of made me realize that okay so we have a problem with grains as well and then slowly little by little i have fully understood and now i have moved 100 percent into nutrition so it's sort of kind of a complete switch
0: yeah fabulous so You've suffered migraines all your life since you were in your teens. Mine came later on. I was about 27 or something like that. So I don't know what brought that on. Um, but tell us a definition of migraine and why it's different to just headaches.
2: Okay, so there are two points here that I would like to make, first of all, getting back to your start of migraine and mine. Um, you may have started it earlier, but the definition of migraine is so poor that children with migraine present with atypical forms. Like my migraines when I was a child were more cyclical vomiting syndrome and irritable bowel syndrome. They were not headache type migraines and no R or nothing like that. So at the time, nobody knew they were migraines. My first original migraine was when I was 29. So very similar to your age, okay? But there's an evolution in the process of the brain basically creating the migraine brain. And so to distinguish a migraine from a headache, uh, first of all, migraine can come without a headache, right? We have what's called silent migraines. And those are people who don't have headache to come with it. So migraine is not an equivalent statement to a headache. Migraine have, has a hell of a lot of symptoms that are not pain. And so if you have pain, then it's a pain as well. <laughs> it's a headache on top of, other symptoms with migraine. And so the pain itself is different as well. So if you have a migraine headache, as opposed to any other headache, first of all, you only hurt on one side of your head, not on two. Second of all, a misconception is that migraine is a pulsing, pulsating, throbbing headache. It's not. It's a very steady headache. It's like somebody hit you with a hammer and it stays in your head. As long as you have a migraine, you have a hammer in your head. And typically it's not like a a very sudden onset, because you have prodromes with a migraine that's a requirement not most people don't recognize or don't understand what a prodrome is and they may have it but they just don't realize that that's a prodrome still there is no migraine without a prodrome and so, so, so yeah i was you gonna know. say can you
0: explain what a prodrome is i think i've understood it from your book but and looking it up but maybe for the listeners explain sure. what a prodrome is
2: Sure, there are many, many programs, hundreds of different types of programs. But a prodrome is a sensation that you feel before you come down with a migraine. And again, it need not be a migraine with a headache, just a migraine in general. So some of the prodromes, for example, most typical for us migraineurs is that one of our eyes becomes smaller than the other. Whereas otherwise, I mean, we all have some asymmetries. I'm not talking about permanent asymmetry that one eye is smaller than the other, but I'm talking about one, noticeably becoming smaller than the other. And of course, it's never noticed by the person, the migraine sufferer herself or himself. It is noticed by other people, but they're not mentioning this because this is like a beauty kind of an issue. And it it took uh, my husband, he was the one who discovered it. He just kept on telling me, you have a migraine face. I said, well, what is a migraine face? Because I didn't see it on me, but he saw it on me. And it took us some time to figure out, ah, your eye gets smaller, visibly smaller, one eye. The other one is the same, but one eye gets smaller. Um, Another proton, for example, is becoming a little bit um, retaining water, edema. So you may end up puffy, your fingers swell, your ankles swell. uh, You may gain, uh, this is very common for people with um, their menstrual cycles or, um, um, you know, before uh, estrus that they may gain a lot of weight, maybe retained water, like two, three pounds, be a kilo in other countries or more. Suddenly overnight, for no reason, they retain that much water. That would be a problem. Another very common problem is starting to yawn, but that, by the time you start yawning, you're very, very close to the actual migraine happening. Um, additional uh, symptoms that nearly all migraineurs have is that they get nauseous or maybe even vomit, dizzy, Many of them suffer vertigo, which is they can stand up. Um, urination, that's, <clears throat> that's a universal symbol again, that before a migraine, a migraine sufferer starts urinating and it urinates a lot more and it's like water coming out. But then by the time the, the migraine starts, you stop urinating and you may not urinate for sometimes even a whole day. So this is these are some symptoms also, um, bowel movement, because the fight or flight kicks in at the beginning of migraine. And so that will empty whatever is in the intestines, in the colon. And so this is, and also in the stomach, that's why the, the vomiting for those who still have fresh food in the stomach and then uh, a very urgent bowel movement for those who already ate some time ago. So these are all prodromes. And then of course there are the aura that a lot of people are familiar with. And it is said that about uh, 20% of migraine sufferers get aura, which is a visual a disturbance very specific with certain patterns that is associated with the brain process of the migraine itself. But what I find uh, in my Facebook group that I run for migraine sufferers, which currently has almost 14,000 members is, uh, and the the other one has almost 2000, is that um, basically nearly everybody has some form of visual disturbance. So you may see like a spot that is moving in your eye that is not a floater, but you just simply can't through that spot. It's like a gray spot. And as you move your eyes, and you just can't through that one tiny, 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 maybe less than a you know, a micromillimeter size, but you can't see through that spot. Or you may see fireworks coming at you, which I sometimes see, or a flashlight. Suddenly in the middle of the night, you wake up that it's almost as if somebody shone a flashlight into your eyes. So so these are all prodromes, and these all happen as longest up to two days before the migraine to as close as a couple of minutes, depending upon the prodrome itself. And then of course, a migraine by definition, if you have pain with a migraine, your headache has to be minimum four hours. So if it is less than four hours, it is not even a migraine. Mm. Even if you're a migraine sufferer and you end up with a headache for whatever reason, if it's shorter than four hours, it is not a migraine. So this is the definition, the, the official definition. Whether this makes sense or not is another question, but this this is the official definition. I personally find that for most people in the Migraine Facebook group, which is very international, most people have at least three days long migraine, and many have more. And then you have a post-drone, which is a recovery stage.
0: Yeah. So what's what does the recovery stage look like for some people?
2: Some people become very hyper and ready to go, and some people... Some people are almost like after surgery, you need recovery because uh, the migraine took so much out of you. So it depends on the person, um, and this also by by the way, the mood I didn't mention for the prodrome, and it's also valid for the postrome. That many people's prodrome before migraine is excessive happiness, for example, or excessive energy. So it's very difficult to tell that you have it, and the same with the postrome, you may end up with excessive energy, and so it's very difficult to sort of distinguish. Or what you have and when you have it and what it actually means but independent of how well we understand what the prodrome may be in your specific case or the postdrome may be, you have to have some prodrome and some postdrome yeah so it's
0: really interesting because i'm reading the book and i'm reading about all the prodromes and i'm thinking i don't know what i have um but it's, it's quite funny, actually, because before I used to have lots of migraines. Well, I think they were migraines, but I was taking so much medication. I would almost every other day I would have a headache of some sort. And I was taking so much medication. I was taking um, Sumitropan and I was taking probably around nine to 12 tablets a month. So you get 12 tablets in a prescription and I was needing to get them every month. But since I've been well, not just since I've been low carb, I think since I got pregnant. So they tailed off when I was in the latter part of my pregnancy and they took a while to come back afterwards, but they never came back as bad. And I managed to wean myself off of the medication. So I rarely take medication now. But since I've been low carb, I go through phases and I still do get them, but I don't get them. Anywhere near as much as before, but I don't know what the prodromes are. But I do, okay. I do yeah. know. That sometimes I have a headache because I can, I take some salt and drink some water, and the headache goes away. Um, as soon as I feel it coming on, and when I've got a migraine, that doesn't do it. And I know it's three days from when it starts. I wake up with the migraine, and I know I've got to count three days to get rid of it
2: it sounds like you do have a migraine though yeah because, because of the lines of time so even if your symptoms slightly differ uh you probably do have a migraine um do you have it on one side of the head or on both sides it's it has to be on one side by definition
0: so interesting yes it's always in my left jaw right i'm, I'm pointing to my jaw for angela and it's always i've had the tooth taken out it was so always there i thought maybe it was a tooth problem, but so I've had the tooth taken out, so I know exactly where it is, right there. And but I do get here at the back of my neck; I can feel it as well. Um, that, they're the two main parts, and I just, okay.
2: yeah, okay. So, so basically, you have two things going on. One of them, when you feel the pain in your tooth area, you actually have what's called trigeminal neuralgia. And um, I opened up a picture, which I is in the book. Uh, I don't know on what page. Uh, which is something that I drew, so it's kind of cartoonish. But in it, I showed trigeminal neurology. So anywhere if you have a pain on your face itself, uh, particularly if you're talking about the teeth, because it's those are the same nerves that you would get, for example, a shot into if you went to a dentist and they did some dental work. And so those are nerves that come close to the skin that are no longer in the skull. They left the skull itself. And so those nerves are not really migraines because migraine of whatever pain we are getting with the migraine is associated with the nerves that are inside the brain, so inside the skull. And so this one is outside of the skull to the point that people can literally inject it with um, whatever they use to, um, to numb it so that you don't feel the tooth, uh, toothache as they're drilling. Um, so trigeminal neuralgia is not a migraine. But this said and done, the nerves that are coming outside from the skull itself, obviously start in the brain. And so the behavior is very similar. Okay, And so you may have it on one side, but it is not a migraine, just to know that. Now, the other that you have said, the, the pain in the back of your neck, now that is much more associated with what I would call migraine, although uh, it's not a migraine itself, it's a cervicogenic pain. And so here the connection is actually Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is uh, particularly hyperflexible. The H-E-D-S form uh, is completely now understood to, to be uh, basically comorbid with migraine. And I discovered this, um, I would say maybe 2013, 2014. That for, I published a, a blog article on it. I believe it was 2014 that I went through some genetic markers and I discovered a very strong, something like 75 or 80% overlap in the genetic variance, just based on SNPs, SMPs, um, between um, migraine and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Now, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is basically a connective tissue disorder. And it seems that, I don't know how many migraineurs in my group have it. I ran a couple of times some surveys, but it seems that most of them have some form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, even if they were not diagnosed, they will tell me that they are hyper-flexible doing this, doing that. So the diagnosis is kind of tricky, um, but you can tell if you have it because you will have some connective issues uh, the, later on in your life. And um, if you have cervicogenic problems, that is one sign of you having the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It may or may not be fully expressed to to have it in a diagnosable level but it is a weakened connective tissues it's a weakened joints the joints are too stretchy and therefore the, whatever position your neck is taking in your head which is very heavy and your neck is supporting it you may end up with some problems uh that are in the cervicogenic area which is basically your older vertebrates and connective tissues and, and uh, joints in your neck yeah. and as it's connecting to your shoulders and so many migraineurs Uh, start the migraine with a cervicogenic pain uh, but the cervicogenic pain itself is not a migraine but if you're a migraine it may initiate a migraine.
0: Ah, Interesting so I do get the sickness I do get the nausea and the sickness and that often is worse than the pain.
2: Way worse yeah exactly
0: yeah so sometimes I can most times now I can manage to not take any medication and just know three days and it will pass but sometimes I get so sick so nauseous that I feel I need to take something to just to be able to cope but I know you say don't take any medication.
2: Right I I say that primarily because um, if you allow your body to tolerate certain level of discomfort your body's body has a, a feedback mechanism itself. I mean, all the symptoms that you feel are basically warnings by your body to stop whatever you're doing because something is not working. So your body is trying to tell you to just stop and change something. So removing that symptom, is like you broke your arm, but now you're going to go play tennis because you removed the symptom of the broken arm by painkillers. Well, yeah. if you now continue to play tennis, it's not going to help your broken arm. Correct. So uh, I understand that if you're nauseous and if you're vomiting, you may want to stop that because that is also counterproductive in other ways because you're losing electrolyte and you're getting sicker outside of migraine. But if you have just a migraine head pain um, or if you have, for example, a tummy pain or if you have, um, I'm going to say something silly, say constipation, which a lot of people avoid talking about, don't medicate it. there are ways to naturally handle this because these are all symptoms. So the the point is is that your body wants to heal. And if you remove the symptoms, then the symptoms will become stronger. So what I find, for example, um, medication overuse headaches, there really isn't necessarily overuse per se because most migranters only take the amount of medication that they're supposed to be taking, but they still cause rebound headache, for example. And that's because the headache itself is not an illness. It's not a disease. It's a symptom of some underlying condition there. And so your body is trying to tell you that something is not right. Fix it. But what you're doing instead, if you take medication, is you remove the symptom. But you continue whatever you were doing before. So you haven't changed anything. So you still have a migraine. You may not feel as badly that you have the migraine. But you still have the migraine. You're still actually getting sicker. And this is one of my biggest problems with the migraine medication. It isn't that uh, medications are bad for you. That's another question altogether. But I think that most migraineurs who go and get an MRI, for example, end up with lesions in the white matter. White matter is the insulation around the neurons of which we can talk about a little bit in more in detail. But these are physical, anatomical changes that migraines cause. And so it isn't that You should remove the symptom to make you feel better uh, because as long as the migraine itself is continuing, you are going to have an increase in these lesions in number and in size, and you're causing damage to your brain. So the goal of um, handling migraine is to reduce the actual migraine, not to reduce the pain. Okay. That's the problem.
0: So I'm, I haven't got all the way through your book. So I'm understanding that the idea is to recognize it before it happens
2: right.
0: and then take action to avoid it. Right. I haven't right. got to that bit yet. So <laughs> <laughs> so what should, if somebody feels, they, they recognize that they've got a migraine coming on, what should they do?
2: Okay, so first of all, you need to figure out why you've got your migraine coming on. So there are basically... Um, there's only one reason for a migraine, for everyone. It's all migraine types. There are really no migraine types. They're all just migraine. The differences are the symptoms based on where the migraine is located in the brain. So all migraines are identically just migraines. And so when you get a symptom, it is always going to be associated with what is potentially causing an electrolyte imbalance. Now, what does what does that mean? So, electrolyte imbalance is you've got, of course, in your blood, salt, um, potassium, calcium, magnesium. These are your main electrolytes. But I'm very specifically talking about salt, and that's because if you go through the literature in migraines, and you get into the d- detail of what migraine actually is and how it manifests physiologically and anatomically how it manifests in the brain, then you come to understand that basically the problem is is that as the brain is trying to work, it requires sodium to enter the neurons, neurons of the brain cells in um That is their name. So the brain cells require, the neurons require a lot of sodium because sodium has to enter the cell and with the entering of the sodium, potassium leaves at the same time. And this generates what's called the action potential. So this is the start of the, the, the current, basically that will run the messages in your brain. If you don't have enough sodium, you can't start an action potential. So the neuron stops communicating to other neurons. This is a warning signal, and the brain will initiate uh, all kinds of symptoms to sort of evaluate what is happening. And one of these things that the brain initiates is functions, not symptoms, but functions. One of the functions that the brain is going to initiate is called cortical spreading depression. I don't want to get into very technical here, but what cortical spreading depression is, is basically causing an ionic shift in the brain. So ions, what are ions? Those are the electrolytes I just mentioned, but in an atomic level, in ionic form. And so it depolarizes the brain. So what is a depolarization? Depolarization is when sodium enters the cells in the brain and start the action potential. So basically what the brain is trying to do is that it sends one ginormous current all through the brain Touching every single neuron in its path. And this, if it recovers on its own and well, then you averted the migraine. So, this is a period for you to act because if this current is able to replenish the sodium evenly everywhere, then you just stopped the migraine. If it wasn't able to avert uh, or replenish the sodium in time because you didn't, you just removed the symptom, but you haven't actually replenish the sodium, then your migraine pain is going to come. If you have pain, if you don't, then you're going to have other migraine symptoms. And so we need to understand, first of all, that this is a sodium problem in a migraineur's brain. And then we need to go back to your example that, okay, so now I have a prodrome, what do I do? Well, I need to understand what did I just do that knocked me out of my sodium balance in my electrolyte? Because if I ate a lot of carbohydrates, I don't have to replenish the sodium differently from when I didn't eat any carbohydrates. And that's because of the nature of carbohydrates is that when glucose enters the cells, it physically removes sodium and water from the cells. And that itself creates the edema that we talked about earlier, which is a prodrome to migraine. And it removes the sodium as well. And so without sodium, then the cortical spreading depression is unable to recreate the electricity or the voltage in the brain. And so if you had consumed, for example, carbohydrates, and you now feel that you have a prodrome and you can see your edema, then taking salt with water is a problem because you have plenty of water in you. You don't need to take more water. You just need salt to pull the water out of your edema. And you can physically see it happening when you take just salt, just maybe a sip to swallow, and then that's it. But if you didn't eat any carbohydrates whatsoever, and you ran out of Sodium for other reasons, which we can talk about why that might be. Then you can take salt with water. So you need to know what you did. Yeah. Because,
0: so if you eat carbohydrate, and we know that carbohydrate holds on to water, what you're saying is it's just moving that salt and water from your brain and putting it somewhere else in your body. Is that what you're saying?
2: So it's a little it bit different. So, it could be. Okay. So it'll be different. So let me also explain. Is a carbohydrate doesn't hold on to water. It is water. Okay. Because if you look at what glucose is, a glucose molecule is basically six water molecules connected to some carbohydrate uh, car, car, carbon, carbon and, and, and hydrogen. Uh, and uh, that's it, basically. It's, it's a ton of water molecules with some carbon. But if you have a glucose molecule entering a cell, the cell is not empty. It's filled, right? So in order for uh, this very large molecule, the glucose molecule to enter, first of all, it can't enter it needs to use a transporter. And they have two transporters to, to have the glucose enter the cell. One is insulin, but insulin only uses one receptor, a GLUT4, to enter into certain cells. And not all of our body has GLUT4 receptors. So insulin is very limited to only certain organs. The majority of our body and majority of our cells uses sodium transporters And so when you're using sodium transporter, then that means that in order for the glucose molecule to get into the cell, uh, sodium's energy, the the ATP-gated channels, the energy-gated channels have to open, so the sodium opens the channel to allow the glucose to go in. But the glucose itself has six water molecules, then six water molecules have to exit for each glucose molecule going in. So it literally kicks out glucose molecule Um, as a result of, I mean, uh, water molecules, as a result of the glucose going in. so it
0: takes the salt with it.
2: And it takes the salt with it because whatever there's salt, salt. there's water, and there's water, there's salt. So they always attract each other and and go together. And so carbohydrates don't hold water. They literally are water. And then that is one of the problems. And the other problem is, is how, what mechanism they have to use to get inside the cell as glucose.
0: Okay, so if we've eaten a lot of carbohydrate and we need to replenish the salt, then we need to do so without drinking a lot of water is what you're saying.
2: Without drinking any water whatsoever. And also you should not be eating uh, a meal, for example, that is salty and follow it by eating carbohydrates or eating carbohydrates with it. So you shouldn't be combining salt with carbohydrates. Oh, if you do then you ha- you end up the sa- with the same problem that the, the sodium from the salt and by the sodium is how ha- is 40 percent of salt because salt is sodium chloride right so sodium is going to take the glucose help the glucose go into your cells um but it's going to be disposed of right because it is uh, uh it has to leave the cell with the water that is being released and so basically you're filling yourself up with salt this is some of the problems that i find with Magnus who join my group who are new, is I say, Well, I salt my food quite a bit. I said, Well, but that's also incorrect because not only is it that uh, with carbohydrate, with the salt is going to go to the wrong, wrong way and is going to go into edema, but also when you eat food that is salted, the absorption of the minerals, including the sodium and the potassium and all the other minerals, are going to happen through your intestines, in, uh, you know, very specifically. And in a step so in a step way in that as uh, as needed, as the, the food is being digested, it slowly absorbs the sodium and the potassium. And these will head inside the cells. Whereas if you're taking salt with water, it's going to head into your blood. It has a different purpose. And if you're looking at where you have the sodium and the potassium and the magnesium and etc. cetera in, in, in your body, then you're going to find that most of the sodium in your body is in your blood it's not inside of your cells. And so taking it with food, you will be over salted. That is going to cause a problem. By contrast, most of the potassium is inside the cells. So if you take potassium as a supplement with water, you're going to be over potassiumed and it's going to cause trouble. So you need to understand that you have to eat food with potassium, but you need to salt your water. So there is a difference in how you're taking these supplements, or not supplements, but uh, these minerals in.
0: Ah, interesting. So um, I have quite a lot of salt on my food. So what I need to do is reduce that and increase the salt when I have the water.
2: Exactly. And you need to also make sure that in your food that you eat, you have plenty of potassium. So in my migraine group, we balance, we use uh, all kinds of, You know, every food that we create, whatever it is, we create recipes and we use Chronometer, which is an app, food app. And the reason why we're using that is because it's connected to the USDA database. So we're getting the full nutrients of the food as long as we use generic uh, food entries and not brand name. And it's international, so you can use it in all languages, but it always connects to the U.S. database for the foods. And you need to somehow find the generic. And then you know how much potassium and sodium is in the food then you know how much more sodium you want to add or more salt you want to add to your food to sort of balance it out to one to one uh, because you, your, most of the potassium is going to end in inside of the cells and much of the salt will actually continue moving on because in the colon, the, the, the job of the colon is to take uh, all, most of the water and the salts back from the feces as it moves through. And so most of it is going to be absorbed into the blood from there. So the processes are different in how the food is absorbed and how the water is absorbed and how the salt is absorbed. And so I recommend the food to be balanced one-to-one in potassium to sodium, not to salt, but to sodium. And when you drink water, drink it only with salt, never drink it with potassium. So don't take potassium supplement. You can have, like if, for example, say there's a pressure change. And migrants are very sensitive to pressure change. And there is a pressure increase. Uh, it's very typical for the United States because we have tornadoes, hurricanes, you name it, we have everything. So we have huge pressure changes. And pressure increase is like going under the ocean. It's like heavy weight on your body. So it's a vasoconstrictor. It constricts your blood vessels. And this can cause an electrolyte disturbance and This requires extra potassium, but we can't take potassium as a supplement because then we may end up with heart palpitations and other kinds of problems. So what we do is then we either eat um, potassium heavy or drink coconut water, unsweetened coconut water, because that is very high in potassium. It's still food. So it's not water per se, it's food. And it's going to pass through a slightly differently. And it's not going to be just straight into our blood. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Lots of tricks here. So,
0: yeah. So um, so the p- potassium we need to eat, I know you mentioned some of the foods that are high in potassium. I think you said
2: salmon. What other ones are good? Um... All meat, actually. If you're looking at beef, uh, beef and salmon almost have equal amount of potassium um there's some other fish even have more uh some what was it that i ate i forget now what i ate it was uh i think it was halibut uh and also uh trout those are like a single serving is like more potassium than an avocado so we are talking about massive potassium amounts so if you're eating say a carnivore diet which is only animal products you're eating as long as you don't eat pre-cooked and processed foods so i'm not talking about sausages that uh, you buy pepperoni and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about you buying a steak and cooking it, or buying a, a pork or duck or whatever else that you're eating, or fish, and you make your own. Those are going to be high potassium foods. The exception will be the other kind of seafoods, like the mollusks, you know, shellfish. These are going to be high salt. Um, but uh, the rest of them, uh, fish, other fish, those are all high potassium.
0: Okay. So if somebody's on a low carb, ketogenic diet, they're eating meat, they're eating real food, chances are they're getting getting enough potassium. Right.
2: Particularly since you're supposed to be eating on a ketogenic diet, the vegetables that you're on fruits that you're allowed to eat are all low carb and very high potassium because you're talking about the um starch-free, leafy veggies, green veggies are all high potassium. And and the fruits that you're supposed to be eating on a ketogenic diet are really just the berries. And those are all high potassium and very low carbohydrate. So if you're looking at it this way, you have a very high potassium diet.
0: And so that should be enough for most people, unless there's something like the pressure changes that they may exactly. need a bit more.
2: You know, I find uh, that uh, in looking at the, what is stated for uh, by the governments uh, for the potassium requirements are way overstated. And that's because there's actually a website where you can look how much potassium and how much sodium we have in atoms or molecules in our body. We have more sodium in our body than potassium. By weight, they are about the same because potassium is a bigger molecule. But definitely it is not like two to one or three to one or four to one potassium. I mean, some people say that you need to have uh, 10,000 grams of potassium a day. Why? You don't. If you eat 10,000 uh, gram of potassium uh, or milligram potassium a day, then you need to have that much sodium as well, because in our body, it's nearly one-to-one. And so we have to also consider ancestrally where we come from, where would we have gotten all those potassium elements? The fruits and vegetables didn't exist yet um, all through our evolutionary path. And only in the past couple hundred years, that we have all these fruits and vegetables. I mean, cruciferous vegetables all come from, I think, a cabbage. Not one actually existed. Um, And so if you look at the fruits, nearly none existed. I I was maybe six or 10 years old when, for example, nectarine was introduced. I mean, we forget that these things didn't exist. We created them. And also there was no transportation. And we kept our meat and fish salted, right? I mean, if you just go back within the biblical period, it was all salted. Everything was salted. That is how you preserve it. Yeah. Exactly. So so where does all this potassium need come from? I don't know. Somebody dreamt it up and suddenly it became like a law that like you have to have a lot of potassium. You don't. It's a yeah. myth. It's it's a problem.
0: Okay. So we don't need to worry about the potassium for the most part, unless there's something going on that we feel we need to. But we do need to worry about the salt. And I want. I just want to come back to one thing that we didn't quite touch on that I think is quite important is that people that get migraine have a different brain to those that don't. So this, you either are somebody that gets migraines or you're not, is, that's right, isn't it?
2: It's totally correct. So it's genetic, So, but there's a, a twist to this as well. So, um, and I just alluded to this in the book in the new edition, the third edition, I'm going to detail it a little bit more. So there's a genetic background here, ancestrally speaking. So if you today go to any wild nature preserve, we don't really have any more wild samanas and that kind of thing. So you just go to see a zoo or a nature preserve and you look at wild animals and including apes uh, or so-called relatives, you're going to see that they have very heightened sensory organs, all of them. They can move their ears in a particular way. They can hear way better than the average human can. They can uh, smell way better than the average human can. And they can see better, some of them. Uh, than the average human can. But they have very heightened sensory organs. So that was the norm. We come from that group of animals, right? So we also had heightened sensory organs. And in our modern life, our heightened sensory organs are, of course, our nose, our eyes, our ears, and for some also the taste. And what I suggest is that mygoners still have these heightened sensory organs. We simply haven't adapted the same way as the people who don't have migraines. So it's not like we are genetically born different. We are genetically born with the original human brain from hundreds of thousands of years ago that hasn't yet adapted to all these carbohydrates, all these noise, all this light, um, all the different kinds of stimulants that mother humans have to face. And so we just are slower in adaptation. And so this is a group of people that is still obviously there is a benefit to having these heightened sensory organs um, because I can see that migrants, for example, several times have saved several cities because there was a gas leak that nobody could smell, but they could smell. And they called out the gas company. In fact, the meters showed that there was a gas leak. It could have been an explosion, right? So there is a lot of reasons why these heightened sensory organs have serious benefits but there's a disadvantage is that these heightened sensory neurons use a lot more sodium because anatomically in the brain it's to be heightened sensory means that you have to have more of it and you have to have more connections between them and more communications between them so by definition then and there are some academic papers showing that migraineurs have much more connections between and among their sensory neurons and so there's much more chatter. And other uh, clinical papers or research papers show that migranters have different uh, electricity uh, voltage in their brain from non migranters. As a result, it is different in magnitude, in amplitude, length of time, frequency, everything is different. So, our brain is different in that it is born with more connections and is more active in terms of our sensory neurons, only the sensory neurons and not all sensory neurons necessarily, it depends on the person. And so it's not a disease per se, it's not something that you are born with to be a migrainer. You're not a migrainer. you're a migrainer because you live in an environment that is not appropriately uh, prepared for your adaptation. So if today you're a migrainer, but tomorrow you move to an uninhabited island, and where there's no stimulants whatsoever, there's no light, no electricity, there's no cars, there is uh, no carbohydrates, anything. So you have to serve up on your own. You don't have migraines from that point on. It's just gone.
0: Because you're using your senses and your brain power to manage exactly. your environment. And you're not exactly. being overstimulated by all and the- you're
2: not being over- exactly And you're not being overstimulated. And because you don't have all these carbohydrates available to you, you're not eating them. And that is why we benefit from the low carbohydrate or no carbohydrate diets. I shouldn't say carbohydrate because uh, meat products also have carbohydrates in them in the form of glycogen, but not like uh, glucose. So the glycogen absorbs differently from glucose uh, in the body, different places. And so if you move to a country where you can't eat all these carbohydrates uh, and you don't have electricity, there's a good chance you won't have migraines even if you're a migraineur
0: yeah so this would have served us well in the past because we would have been on high alert for what's going on for predators for danger for all things like that
2: exactly
0: which we don't necessarily need nowadays although we can probably still tap into those i haven't even considered tapping into that but yeah i'm starting my journey now right Um, does that affect
2: people's sleep oh yes of course uh, several ways. First of all, because we are in high alert, we are the proverbial cat with a sleeping with a half eye open sort of kind of thing. And so um, we are a longer alert in our sleep as well. And so we have also much uh stronger, uh, violent often um nightmares and sleeps, you know, the kind of ram sleep that people have. You have amazing dreams sometimes because of the, the overstimulation of these neurons because basically a REM sleep is a recall and creation of stories and memories. And uh, we have a lot more than an, an average normal person. And so I noticed in my group that people have difficulty sleeping. They wake up in nightmares. I used to wake up in nightmare all the time. I don't anymore because a diet obviously has a lot to do with it. And also how you manage your environment has a lot to do with it. Uh, But yes, it definitely. And and there's one more thing that is very important here that very few people talk about. And that is that the brain every single night uh, basically goes through a cleaning period in which the brain literally shrinks a little bit, just a tiny bit. We're talking about, you know, micro (laughs) millimeters here just to to allow the CNS, the central, you know, the the fluid uh, to pass through and to clean, and so this fluid passes through every single neuron, it touches it, and uh, it removes, you know, debris of protein fragments, glucose leftovers, all these molecules and atoms that are just fragmented, it removes and clears. This is one of the things that, for example, in the brain of the Alzheimer's is not getting cleared properly as so far as we understand. And um, and so as this CN, uh, CNS uh, CNF fluid, CNF is heading through the brain, um, it touches every neuron. And as the neurons are touched, that may be when they have these very vivid dreams because they're basically every single neuron is activated as the cleaning fluid is passing by. It's like a cleaner touching every single table and sweeping under kind of a thing. And so we don't have as restful of a sleep as long as you don't follow uh, the protocol. Once you follow the protocol and once you totally change your lifestyle, this is going to change. Okay. Um, so
0: um, I want to get back to the sodium point, because I think this is this is obviously the, the crux of the matter is we need to keep our sodium up if you've got a migraine. Is there a particular type of salt that we should be having and any to avoid?
2: Great question. And I'm glad that you brought that up because so many people go for expensive, fancy salts. And you don't need to do that. In fact, you're better off without them because salt is nothing more than sodium and chloride. So anything else that is in the salt as you're taking it is either coming from dead organic material in the oceans or fish poop, (laughs) I usually say. Um, Or in the case of, for example, Himalayan salt and some other uh, salts that are tectonically formed in caves, uh, particularly the Himalayan salt, the colors, what do we think the colors are? the color, the beautiful pinky-orangey color. Mineral, is I
0: guess. Oh, rust.
2: Rust. Would you eat rust? Uh, I mean, so you have to consider what those are. It's also full of lead, mercury. And it also has radioactive materials in it because this tectonically was generated and so some of them are still radioactive, uh, some materials in them. So that's your himalayan salt. And then you're looking at all these fancy salts, the French and whatever salts that are evaporated. And they have color. So there's the gray, there's the pink, there's all kinds of different kinds of salts. Well, what are you, where does the color come from? Because salt is transparent. So where does these, where do these colors come from? They come from the sand or the mud. Well, do I want to eat sand and mud in my salt? No. Then we're coming to the evaporation versus uh, the purification. Evaporated salt is the old way of doing it that all humans have always done. And so we think of it as really good up until you see a film and you realize that these evaporations are huge open fields and you have birds flying over them, pooping into them. I've seen a film um, where these people were actually generating salt fields in the desert. So they drilled holes to get the water and get the salt uh, from deep under. And then they were walking in boots, uh, you know, clearing the salt and drying it in the sun. And I see them tasting it and spit. And then it goes, she just continues. So if you consider what an evaporated salt is, it's basically quite impure. And people tell you, well, it's full of minerals. I say, yes, it contains the spit of this person. It has minerals in it and it contains the fish poop and, and, and the birds flying over or whatever they drop. I don't know about you, but if I eat salt, I'm going to take the salt that has been heated, purified, has absolutely nothing added, and <laughs> just salt, and that's a table salt. That's your common everyday table salt.
0: <laughs> Angela, <laughs> for me, the table salt was the devil's creation. I have been uh, a decade in only eating either sea salt or Himalayan salt. If, if people that there's people listening that I know know me. And I always walk around with my bag of Himalayan salt. I need to get rid of that now, don't I? I'm
2: so sorry. I didn't <laughs> do that, but I actually wrote an article on one of my blogs, which is the cluelessdoctors.com. if anybody is interested. It's not migraine-oriented, but it's, it was my first um, activist blog against the, the, the silliness out there. And uh, one of the blog articles that I wrote very early on is on the Himalayan salt, and there's one page one website is an independent lab that analyzes Himalayan salt, and it has all the nutrients, the so-called trace minerals listed. And you're going to find lead, mineral, arsenic, uranium. I mean, it's like an atomic factory, okay? Forget <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, no. I've got
0: stores of Himalayan salt in my, in my kitchen. I'm going to have to – yeah. Okay, okay. so if, you get, if, you, if you're buying table salt – um what about the additives that they add into that does that, okay, is that a, a problem?
2: It's, a it's a valid question so it depends on the additive so in europe and i don't know uh, elsewhere there is i think it's called e533 or something like that which is considered to be safe uh but i have found that under this particular guideline in europe they use uh, things like ferrocyanide for example and so when you look at ferrocyanide you think this well it's it's safe but look at it as a chemist. What ferrocyanide? Ferro is iron. It's a heavy metal, which will rust, right? Yeah. Cyanide. What is cyanide? It's
0: a poison. Yeah. No,
2: it's a poison. So why would anybody eat salt with a poison in it? And so you have to pick and choose the kind of um, additive in the salt. And in some places you can't. And and if, like in the U.S., I eat Morton salt because Morton salt, um, there are some that that may be similar to Morton salt, that may or may not have good kind of, uh, uh, there's a yellow of soda, I think, that too is a cyanide. I mean, you have to look up all these names um, on basically Google, just go to Dr. Google (laughs) and look it up and see what it is chemically. And if you see the word cyanide, don't go there because this is toxin. You don't want to eat a poison. Now, if you're not a mygoner, but you're just an average person who is using average amount of salt, It may be fine, it may be safe, because our body is made to, you know, survive some of these little toxins. In fact, it can be argued that it creates hormesis and it may be beneficial because you give a little bit of stress for the body just to release the kind of response that can protect you from, against a bigger stress. But if you're a migraine sufferer and you eat 10 times as much salt as other people do, that may be a different story. And so you want to look for the kind of additives that are not harmful. And so um, in the U.S., the Morton salt does not have any harmful additives. And um, it has been proven by us. Uh, I've been taking Morton salt in huge amounts every single day uh, for the past 15 years. And I have no negative side effect whatsoever. So clearly, there, there are no problems with it. If, for whatever reason, anybody feels that they don't want to have anything to do with this kind of refined salt, fine. Go for kosher salt. Kosher salt is without any additives, but it's purified. So
0: so kosher salt is something that's very American, isn't it? And um, We don't have that here, or, or is it something? What? I'm sure you
2: do. I'm sure you do. You just don't realize because there are Jewish people everywhere. So that would be Jewish uh, and halal. Uh elements. so I'm sure you have it. You have to have it. It's in every country uh, that I know of. You just may not have paid attention to it. It's not something I personally have never noticed it in my store because I don't look at it. But I know that it's carried because a lot of my migranters use it, and so it's definitely there. It's uh, may not. I don't know what n- names or brand names it goes on there, but it will say on the package that it is um, halal or kosher. It's going to say that, and then you know that that's a kosher salt. And the only difference is that they cut the crystals differently. So they take up more space, but less weight. So you have to know that you have to add more from kosher salt than from other salt to get the same weight. That's basically the only difference. And they're purified sea salt, but they're purified and without any additive. So they're just dried and they're not cut in such a shape that you can use them, uh, use it in a salt shaker without one of those grinders attached to it. Yeah. Okay. So how much should salt should people be taking? Okay. So this is a guess uh, because we now have basically two ways of looking at this uh, or three. So if you're not a migraineur, you still need some salt in your water because water itself is dehydrating. And I can explain that one too, if you want me to. So I recommend for a non-migraineur to add, I would say um, a quarter, th- I would say a a quarter teaspoon per liter of water. She says drinking water. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) drinking water. If you're a migraineur, you need to take minimum twice that much. So in a migraine group, we're taking one-eighth of a teaspoon of salt per eight ounce, which is about 240 milliliter cup of water. And so many people don't like the taste of salt. Like, I can't take the salt in water because it's also an emetic and it makes you... uh, Makes many people vomit and feel uh, bad, so we use tablets or capsules, whatever it may be. Uh, and uh, you can make your own or buy. Um, I've designed one for me, and then uh, it, my son. I not no affiliation whatsoever with the company, but uh, in the United States, it's sold under health by Principle, what I designed originally for me, um, not affiliated with the company, and. But you can make your own salt capsules. You just have to have a little scale so that you can measure it. 300 milligrams sodium, which is about 700 milligram, 750 milligrams salt is what we use per cup of, of water per capsule or something like that. And so the, you can also,
0: yeah. So you need 300 milligrams of sodium, which is
2: 700 milligrams
0: of 750,
2: salt. 780 actually milligram salt, right? Because 40% of salt is sodium so okay. it's about 80 milligrams salt and so the problem is is that if you get it like in australia or in uk or elsewhere they only have the salt salt pills which are um like in the u.s the salt pill is one gram which is 1000 milligram but for example in australia it comes uh, uh i think 600 milligrams salt which is only 200 milligrams 240 milligrams sodium so it's less than the ideal and I don't know but in the UK they have. But so when you get the salt pills, those are not the right size. So you can either decide to just take more, like in Australia, double. And um, elsewhere in the US, for example, a bit of 1,000 milligram salt, you may uh, just take the whole pill, which is a little bit more. Um, or you just eat the salt to yourself or create the capsules yourself. So get some veggie caps and uh, get a little scale. You can get a little jewel scale for like $7. It's really very inexpensive. And measure out one, just one salt capsule with the salt in it, and then from that point on, you know how much you need to add. Yeah. And uh, so what we do in for migraineurs, there are basically two groups of migraineurs: those who need to have salt in every single water that is just one eighth of a teaspoon equivalent, or this um, 300 milligram sodium, 780 milligram salt. But then, because there's another comorbidity with migraine, which is called POTS. It's a postural orthostatic um, tachycardia syndrome. It's when you stand up, your heart rate increases tremendously. without your blood pressure changing. And um, migraineurs and also Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, these all come together somehow with POTS. And so many of the migraineurs, even if they haven't been officially um, diagnosed with POTS, they have POTS-like symptoms. And so, for example, I had POTS-like symptoms, and then I went through a test, and I I have a light version of POTS, for example. And so the recommendation for POTS is to increase salt. (laughs) And what I found was I was talking to my cardiologist, who's an electrophysiologist, and who diagnosed me with POTS. He said, how much salt are you taking? I said, well, I'm taking one eighth of a teaspoon, this much salt, 780 milligram salt. He said, minimum double that. And so I not take twice that much per water, and there are. And he said you can increase it up to three even, because if you go to a hospital, for example, and you get an intravenous uh, saline solution, that contains a little more than three of these. uh, The three is actually almost a half a teaspoon per cup of water equivalent. So he said you have plenty of room to go up. Wow,
0: that's a lot of thought, isn't it? So. For somebody that has a migraine, it's a, every cup of every glass of water that they drink, they need to have a salt capsule or an eighth of a teaspoon of
2: right or water. more. I, or that's more right. More. And in fact, um, for those migraineurs who are just starting out in my group, I recommend that the first thing that they before even they change the diet, the first thing that they do is first of all, calculate how much water they need because we most I find most people underwater tremendously based on this eight cup minimum a day or eight cup a day or whatever they recommend that's incorrect and so we need to calculate for each person how much water they need and so my recommendation is for once you know how much water you need to increase your water slowly half a cup a day to your minimum but start out by the morning the first water you drink needs to have salt in it and evening at night before you go to sleep your last water needs to have salt in it so these are what I call preventives Because if you are able to avert the very early morning migraine, which is the majority of the migraines when they start, then you have averted more than 50% of the migraines. And so this is how I started also. My initial start when I first started like 15 years ago was salting in the morning because I didn't quite understand yet the whole physiology, but I totally thought, well, let me try this too, because I tried everything else and there was nothing else to try. And uh, taking salt every morning with, at that time, not uh, even drinking enough water, literally reduced my migraines to more than half, to, I'm sorry, to be less than half. So it reduce it by more than half, just that on its own. That was a preventive. And then you slowly increase the salt as you go, not at once because your kidneys have to get used to all this extra salt. Now migraineurs have different kidneys in that. There's an article on this, Uh, from 1951, I think it was, uh, it was a clinical trial where they looked at the the sodium content of the urine of migraineurs versus non-migraineurs. And migraineurs excrete 50% more sodium than non-migraineurs do. So migraineurs have a different kidney system as well. They are salt wasters, they excrete sodium. So when we eat more salt, that's no problem, we just excrete the extra. So we don't have the same problem as non-migraineurs do. Right, wow.
0: (laughs) <laughs> there was I'm, I'm gonna there's a couple of things I I asked in my Facebook group if anybody had any questions for you and I have a feeling what you're going to say but I'm going to ask the question anyway um so Jody asked she says she suffers with headaches possibly migraines post period and would love to know any tips for balancing hormones her thyroid doesn't function properly and is artificially may be incorrectly managed by levothyroxine. So do you think she has migraine if it just comes post-period? Or
2: Oh, it it can be. Absolutely. No, it can be. And so let me explain why uh, hormonal changes may affect migraine for those who have migraine um, brain, as we said, is that estrogen holds onto sodium, whereas progesterone dumps sodium. And so, different times of the month, you're going through different cycles that will interfere with how your kidney works. And so, this is not just for migraineurs; it is for all people. Everybody will, for example, puff up perhaps it, at the period of the month when they're more estrogen dominant, and will lose weight when they are progesterone dominant. That would be a normal way of, of being, but they may not get a headache from it. Um, because it changes the electrolyte when estrogen grabs all sodium and holds onto it and the body isn't able to release it. That's a problem. So people who end up during a period or after period, whenever the estrogen phase is, and that can change depending on person, some people get it twice a month, some months a month, it depends. Uh, Whenever the estrogen period is, um, they will need to reduce their salt consumption and increase the potassium because they have plenty of salt, it's retained. And so they need to increase the potassium to encourage the body to release the extra sodium and to check whether the person is estrogen heavy or progesterone heavy. Short of being blood testing every single day, you just have to use the scale. You just have to stand on the scale every single morning. When you wake up, you go to the bathroom, do whatever you do before you eat, before you drink naked, measure your weight every single day and keep some sort of diary. Or in my case, my weight, my scale actually tells me what I was yesterday. And it tells me whether I increase or decrease relative to uh, my uh, yesterday reading. And so I can follow. Plus, it also loads the information on my computer or my phone. So I can see how well um, I have changed. And if my weight increased, I no longer have period. Of course, I'm almost 70. So that's not going to happen. But luckily, but if you're still having periods and if you increase weight, or if you're sensitive to pressure changes, barometric pressure changes, which move along the same principle, stand on the scale and check and see what happens. Like, for example, today, I am almost three pounds. That's more than a kilo heavier than I was yesterday this time. I haven't had anything to eat or drink, just a little bit of water now. But when I stood on the scale, there's no reason for the three pound increase or one and a half kilos increase at all. So what's the, and I'm not not having any period. So what's the change? Huge pressure increase. And so that made me retain water. And so it's very good for you to continuously check your weight on the scale and see if what happens. If you increase weight, reduce your sodium. In some cases, also reduce your water because you have a lot of water in you. And just increase potassium in your diet. Don't take potassium supplement, just increase potassium in your diet. And then if you drop weight, then you start increasing again salt and water.
0: Ah. Fantastic. Great. So so it's possible that Jody does have a migraine and right. they, so she just needs to use the potassium sodium differences for, right. depending on what, right. what's happening in her body at the time of the month. Right. So one of the things you mentioned was um damaging the brain.
2: Do migraines cause brain damage? Yes, they do. And that's because when you don't have enough uh, sodium for the communication of one neuron to the next, in the brain, everything is based on communication ability. A neuron that is not communicating is trimmed, it's literally disconnected from the other neurons. And that's a brain degeneration. And so that's a neuronal problem. And in addition, There's very little difference between a migraine and a seizure. So that's why many migraineurs end up having seizures as well. Um, The mechanism by which the cortical spreading depression per se that I mentioned earlier has is different. So in the case of a migraine, it starts in one part of the brain and moves through the brain in a systematic way all the way through, whereas in a seizure, it sort of kind of explodes in one place and goes in all directions. But it's the same exact thing. So the damage that this voltage causes is exactly the same as in a seizure brain. And so it will damage the insulation. So the the white matter that I mentioned earlier, where we have the lesions uh, that we are getting is basically damage to the insulation. And so this white matter is insulating, it's called myelin, uh, the official name. And this myelin sheath is made from fat and cholesterol. And so this is built by the brain itself. And basically every single neuron is is inside this very heavy insulation it's much thicker than you would think so if if the, the neuron itself is one millimeter then consider the ins, the insulation around it to be a uh, several times the size maybe five six millimeters it's much bigger and if there's insulation damage that means there will be leaking of the voltage so there's going to be trouble and if other neurons because in the brain there's no room there's like a the brain itself is very, very tight and connected. And if the insulation is removed between two neurons, then there may be uh, a problem if the two touch, right? So you can short each other out. So you can have serious brain damage, uh, you know, migraine brain, if the migraines are not stopped. I'm not talking about the symptoms, the actual migraines are not stopped. So what we find is members who have been in the group for many, many years. I mean, our Facebook group now is, over eight years old. And uh, we have members who have been with us from the very beginning and our brains have changed. Our brains have healed. We can literally heal the brain. And so whatever other brain conditions we had, say anxiety, depression, whatever else uh, we may have had, are all gone, everything is gone. And we all become sharper. We all return, uh, recover our brain function fully from what it used to be. And I
0: guess that's by incorporating the the water and the salt, but I guess also increasing fats and reducing carbohydrates is going to help as well.
2: Right, tremendously, and particularly the kind of fats, because if you look at the brain, we don't have vegetable fats anywhere in our body. We we don't need any vegetable fats. We do need omega-3, so we do need the fish oil. We particularly need the DHA. And so there's a lot of YouTube videos on this, and I have other interviews on on that as well. But DHA is the one because of which you want to eat the fish oil. So don't buy just fish oil for the sake of fish oil. Look for the one that actually is high DHA, because that helps the, the actual neurotransmission itself. So between the neurons, the communication that is handled by the DHA. So you want to have the kind of omega-3 oil that is high in DHA. So if you can eat fish, those are all high in DHA, or you can, if you buy supplements, then get the DHA heavy ones. But otherwise, what you need is really purely animal fat. So saturated fat is very important for the brain because the polyunsaturated fats are very, very long, and they can't even get into the brain. And um, we have trouble with them. They change our entire body structure. We don't you know, they don't have the same properties as saturated fat. So we need to have the, the short and medium chain fatty acids, those are the ketone type fatty acids, um, and the long chain fatty acids in saturated fat. So these are the fatty fatty acids that we need. And we need a lot of cholesterol as well.
0: Yeah. Fabulous. So so um thank you for your time. And I know that I'm taking up a lot of your time, but this is all so fascinating. So I want to go on to ask you about what, how you eat and what you eat. And, and I know you change it throughout the year. So maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about what you do.
2: Sure. First of all, I tried every single way of of eating other than vegan. I never, ever believed in vegan eating, but I have tried a little bit of vegetarian and a little bit of everything else. And so in the process of my migraine, evolution i should say my understanding evolution i went through all the different kinds of low carb uh, methods the low carb high fat the whole 30 the uh, paleo the ketogenic whatever i went through all of them in fact ketogenic was the one that i started with and i did that professionally so i went to my doctor and i said i want to go and learn the ketogenic diet and he said well you only give it to uh, kids who have seizures. I say, okay, I'm a kid with seizure. Can you please put me through? <laughs> and because I'm very lucky in this, because having been a PhD, you have a little bit better chances of getting into these kind of things. And so my doctor said, sure. So I went through and I had uh, a specialist uh, given to me who then taught me the ketogenic diet. So it was fantastic. So I was then put on the ketogenic diet that's offered to children who have mild seizures. So that's called the MAD, the modified Atkins diet. So that's how I started my experimenting. Um, and then from there, I did that for quite quite a while. And then from there, I um, went to just low-carb high fat from which I've created my protocol in the migraine group, which is modified. So it's not just standard low-carb high fat. Then I also tried the carnivore diet. Carnivore diet is all animal products, uh, but in my protocol, it includes dairy as well. And we also don't restrict some things like coffee It's fine. I mean, we don't support more than one cup of coffee a day, but it's okay. Even though it's a plant, you can have it. And we allow herbal seasoning for the food. We don't allow the taking of herbs, but um, if you want to put a little bit of cinnamon on your carnivore ice cream, be my guest. That's totally fine. And, um, So we also have what's called a keto carnivore, which is basically carnivore, but it allows one to two carb grams coming from plants, typically fruits. And by fruits, don't just think of berries or other kinds of things, but like tomato, pepper, cucumber, squash, these are all fruits. Everything with seed in it or on it are fruits. And so these are all low carb fruits and that's what we encourage. Now, what I do now is I do seasonally, as you said. Except this year is the first year when I'm not, because now I'm trying to sort of spread my wings and see how far I can go, you know, getting into trouble. Because that's also part of my job to sort of experiment in how far I can go. But normally I do seasonal. So what does that mean? It means that I follow a natural rhythm <clears throat> of nature. So, for example, in the winter time, uh, under normal conditions outside of this year, I would not have any plant matter whatsoever because they just wouldn't be available to me uh, even as little as three hundred years ago. It just wouldn't have been available to me, and even as a child, I didn't have it available to me other than maybe some potatoes or whatnot, but basically nothing was available because there was just no um, growing in hot houses yet. Um, then come spring, I will eat some spring vegetables or fruits although I no longer eat vegetables and I also explain why and then uh, summertime and fall will be the fruit times where I will increase the fruit and most of the heavy fruits is going to come in the fall so I do gain weight in the fall but I don't mind because it's part of natural being and so I I don't care about that mm. and uh, then in winter again you go on full uh, carnivore and you lose it all and so However, I've changed quite a bit this. This is the my normal routine. Um, but I have changed this first of all because plants. So plants have so many anti-nutrients. Now, if you come from your life when you eat a lot of plants in part of your diet, even on the ketogenic diet, um, you won't know this. But once you stop eating plants for a length of time, say for three months, you stop all plants and you get back to them. You will no longer like them because they not taste bitter. They not have a bite to them that you didn't taste before. They may have a bitter aftertaste. They may have a smell you didn't notice before. It's just that your body sort of kind of adapted to them over your lifetime. And so if you haven't stopped eating them, you keep on eating them and and you don't notice it. But the moment you stop eating them, that's it. You can no longer eat them because your body is telling you, stop. This is not good for you. You just can't eat it, period. And so I'm having a really hard time with vegetables. I'm not able to eat nearly any of them. Mm. I still eat onions and um, garlic. These are the two vegetables I still use for cooking. But I don't. And I every now and then I may taste uh, a salad here and there but I can't eat it regularly. I even get sick from them. So it's just really, it tells your body tells you what you can or cannot eat. Now I'm saying, I'm not saying that this is for everyone. Everybody is different to some degree, but my body tells me I should not touch vegetables period. And so fruits, I don't have any problem with. And so I'm experimenting, not increasing a little bit more fruits and uh, how how I can manage my game, whether it's not good for me or not is another story in terms of my, my metabolic health but I just want to see in terms of migraine and so I am able to completely prevent all my migraines even if I increase the fruits in my diet
0: Mm. fabulous one of the things you because you sent me a you you sent me um a note about what you do eat and what you don't eat and one of the things that you said you don't eat is yogurt and kefir can I ask why yes okay
2: um, and it's because of the way the the um, fermentation is taking place. So when you consider the fermentation, it basically pe- pre-chews your food for you. And it breaks up uh, the lactose in the dairy in the product that you're eating. And once it's broken up, you're absorbing it as sugar, as glucose and galactose already in your mouth. Even if it doesn't taste sweet, because neither glucose nor galactose on their own will taste sweet combined they taste lactose and have no sweetness to them whatsoever and normally lactose breaks up past your stomach in your intestines in the duodenum. it's in a different place and so when it's broken up into glucose and galactose in your duodenum, your insulin releases exactly as much as needed because it's already in control and it understands the amount your pancreas knows how much insulin to release but when it's in your mouth it has no idea So if you eat yogurt or or kefir, you are more likely to end up with a reactive hypoglycemia because your pancreas will release much more insulin than needed. And so this was not a guessing game. This came out of experiments in the migraine group where people would be eating these and then they would be running about a Kraft equivalent. So there was Joseph Kraft who had this five-hour blood glucose and and insulin test. I don't use insulin. I use ketones instead. But it's still a five-hour postprandial test taken every half an hour. And every single person eating yogurt or kefir or uh, there's another one, quark, would end up with a reactive hypoglycemia in a sugar crash. And I said, okay, so this is the reason they release too much insulin. Because their the the sweetnesses or the sugars are in their mouth, even if they can't sweet them, uh, taste them. And one more thing that is important to add to is, is coffee. Many people who Fast, for example, or don't have breakfast, they have coffee instead. They tested that as well. That causes a massive reactive hypoglycemia and sugar crash. And sweeteners, be it stevia, whatever else, all of them cause spectacular sugar crashes. And so these are all off limits for my owners.
0: Wow. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, and then, and um, so I'm, 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 Swift's switch switching between what you mentioned and and in the book as well so you're you're suggesting for migraineurs to drink milk just before bed or a mixture of milk and cream
2: not anymore that's in the book but that it's changed and so what i what we now do it's sort of kind of evolved this is why it's better to be in the group where we apply the more uh, up to date protocol okay three um because what we discovered is that taking 50 grams of red meat before sleep has a way better outcome than drinking milk and cream before sleep uh, because it does increase your insulin a little bit, but it increases it as part of protein synthesis because your dinner, in my, if you're in my group, your dinner is very protein heavy because I want you to get into protein synthesis, which can last for many hours. And so if a few hours later you eat 50 gram, of additional meat it just continues your protein synthesis all through your night so it prevents the morning sugar crash so we don't do the and cream anymore
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> right because I was going to ask because that's quite carb heavy isn't it so it's
2: right and so we don't do that uh, it's better than uh, having a tub of ice cream because the carbs in milk like I said activates just past your stomach in the duodenum so your body reacts to it differently than it would to the same equivalent amount of actual sugar so even though it says a, a cup of milk has 12 carb grams it really isn't the same carbs as, as eating 12 sugar grams yeah okay. it absorbs differently yeah
0: so now you're saying eat so even if so if you have supper around 6 30 7 o'clock um in the evening and going to bed at say 11 o'clock you should then at that point just before bed
2: eat about a half an hour half an hour to an hour before bed eat 50 50 grams of of meat which is basically a half a burger just eat it cook it properly balance it with sodium and potassium so we're not uh, trying to get out of sodium and then follow it with salt and water and go to bed in half an hour an hour and you're going to be fine all night because this uh, see the it's the morning down phenomenon that gets migraineurs into trouble which happens between three to 4 30 depending upon the person and so for most persons that i know at about 3 30 they wake up with a uh, migraine headache and so i call this in the book the wake-up call the mm. migraine wake-up call and that's because of the sugar crash in response to the down phenomenon mm. and the down phenomenon is really nothing more than the release of all the baking up your body is releasing all the stress hormones to to get your body moving and release extra glucose release extra this extra that but the release of the extra glucose causes a problem unless you're metabolically stable because you're in the middle of protein synthesis then it's not going to bother you yeah
0: because i wore a um cgm cgm a while ago and I've done it a couple of times and the way I eat, it's, it's flat. It's fairly flat. But what I did notice a couple of times in the night is I'd have a big drop. Um, And I don't know if that's because I am a migrainer or not, if it just happens generally, but I would have a really big drop. Might only be for a short period of time and then it would come back up
2: again. But But that would be because your liver released the glycogen. But So this is what we want to avoid. If you're fully metabolically healthy, you would not have that big drop. And so eating the 50-gram meat before sleep will prevent you from having that very big drop. That Mm -hmm. is a problem. And also having the CGM be completely flat isn't desired because in order for you to uh, start protein synthesis, you have to release some insulin. There's no protein synthesis without insulin. So you, in order to release insulin, you have to spike glucose somehow a little bit. There's just no way out of it. And so in my group, at least everybody, no matter which way they're eating, they have to eat enough protein, animal protein to, spike, to start protein synthesis. And so that is a lot of meat because it requires a particular leucine threshold. And um, the leucine threshold depends on animal type. So for example, in beef, You don't have to eat more than um, I forget now. It's a hundred gram beef, hundred fifty gram beef, which is like about four ounce burger, which is nothing. It's two bites, and you're completely fine. But if you're eating chicken, you know you have to eat like four times that much to get the leucine. And so, uh, but if you do meet your leucine threshold, and the minimum is three gram for all. People, but of course, the less activity and the older you are, the more you need. Like, I need a lot more leucine, for example, than you do. And so I will have to eat more proteins. It's quite counterintuitive, too, because the older you get, the more protein you have to eat. And the more protein you eat, the less you're in the ketogenic diet. So you're going to find that in my group, there's nearly no one. I mean, a very small percent of the people are in my ketogenic group because the ketogenic diet is not that suitable for migraine coronary is much more suitable
0: yeah yeah then you need to eat more much more protein yeah much more protein right now you said for your age you need more protein i need to tell the listeners who can't see you that there is no way that you look like you're 70 years old i'm almost 70
2: thank you yeah and i would
0: say <laughs> that you're younger than 60 so you look fantastic thank, you.
2: thank <laughs> you i feel that way but i think that has a lot to do with what, the way you eat that you tend to become younger as time time goes on yeah
0: so and and one other question and then we'll i'll let you go but we spoke about electrolytes and we've spoken about salt and potassium does magnesium feature in, in okay, so, supplementing and
2: yes magnesium is important but there's a caveat here too and unfortunately i have a caveat everywhere but the caveat <laughs> magnesium is is that because mygoners have restless sleep as we talked about earlier and nightmares magnesium is a stimulant for the brain for mygoners for other people it may help them sleep. For migraineurs, it will keep them awake. So migraineurs need to take their magnesium in the morning. (laughs) That's all. Not at night, but in the morning. And they have to take magnesium because we also use more magnesium than other people do. So every migraineur should take magnesium, but take it in the morning. Don't take it at night. Don't take it past 3 o'clock because you will have nightmares.
0: Right. I need to change my whole life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And let me add here, there are two additional supplements that I recommend for my nurse. uh One of them is um, basically a TTFD kind of B1. It's TTFD. It's a very long chemical name. It's a special B1, uh, which is only available in a few brands. It was discovered in Japan many did years say, ago. Did you say TTT? Tetra, whatever. So it's all T, T, and F, and D. So and what it does, it's a... Behaves like a fat-soluble thiamine. It's a thiamine supplement, and it can enter. Uh, it it can cross blood blood-brain barrier. That's the only one that can cross and can enter into the cells without any transporters. I found that most mageners lack thiamine transporters, and so this TTFDB one uh, can create a little bit of a problem at the beginning as you start taking it because your body is so rejecting it. It's not used to having it but after a while you start using it it totally changes you as a person and the other one is b2 but it needs to be an active form which is the riboflavin phosphate, is the only active form so i recommend these two to be taken and the magnesium uh, every day for all migrators because it seems to really help um in the general health and well-being of migraine migraine brains it seems that that causes cause a lot of uh, damage and so these are required for the healing
0: Mm. and you said um in the book that um a lot of people most have the mhtfr um genetic um variant variant thank you
2: yeah And,
0: and so therefore should be having methylated um b vitamins
2: right uh now that only is valid for the B12 and a B9. And I have changed that since because I have I keep on running um you know blood tests. I re- request everybody now to get a full laboratory blood test. And I request the B12 and the B9 as well as some other B vitamins on it. And I can see that there is no MTHMR variant that is more frequent among migraineurs than it is in the general population. So that is a myth. That is another one of the things that in scientific articles it is suggested that myoners are more likely to have this MTHFR variant. This That's not correct. Okay. And so um, I don't recommend the supplementing of the B9 and the B12 uh, unless the blood test shows that it is required. And if it's required, then yes, use the methylated, uh, not the, not the uh, regu- regular cobal- cobalamin that go for a uh, methylcobalamin and also mixed with adenosylcobalamin. The two combined work together. And for um, B9, use for use methylfolate. And generally speaking, I would say that 80% of the migraineurs don't need to take that because when they take the B2, which is the riboflavin 5-phosphate, as I noted earlier, that seems to kick all the B vitamins up a notch in their body. So it starts being used by taking that B2. Right. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so
0: much for all your time. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that you wanted to mention? I'm going to ask you to tell everybody how they can find you and about your books and things. But is there anything else you wanted to speak about today that we haven't covered?
2: Uh, I think that we covered pretty much everything. Um, maybe the one thing that we didn't um, cover so much is, you know, one of the points is is that whether my is a disease or not. Uh, we covered pretty much everything else, but uh, I don't think that we discussed that. And I mentioned the ancestral process that the brain has always been um, a, lo- a little bit more hyperactive and so forth. And so my brain being is just genetically different as a result. We are not adapted. And so it follows that many times I hear that, well, but it's a disease and it's irreversible. And if you have it for life and blah, blah, blah. So, well, yes, you have your brain for life and it is irreversible. But it's not a disease. It's Mm. just a different brain. It's not any different from somebody, say, a blue eye versus a brown eye. It's a genetic uh, adaptation to the blue eye has its own benefit. And that's why most people living in the Nordic part of the world are blue eyed or green eyed, because it's beneficial. It has an adaptation there. Whereas if you're living closer to the equator, it's going to be more brown. Um, it's a genetic difference it's not a disadvantage unless of course you are moving with a blue eye into the equator or moving the brown eye to the north pole there may be some disadvantages then but it's not a disease it's just a genetic difference and Uh so migraine is not a disease so there's nothing to cure per se we can just prevent it from happening
0: yeah it's understand now now hopefully our listeners have got a much better understanding and they'll come and join your group and buy your book. Um, it's it's understanding what you need to do to avoid it and be on be on the lookout for, right. other than and and just understand that it's a different brain and that's and it's working right. differently and then you've got to work with that. Exactly. So how can people get in contact with you?
2: Well, uh, they can of course join my migrant group on Facebook if they are on Facebook, and I actually have it open so I can look up. And the, the name of the group has changed not too long ago. Um, so the current name is Migraine Sufferers Who Want to Heal uh, by the to Migraine Protocol. So that's the current name. And um, then they can of course find me. I have the webpage, the uh, blog, uh, which is uh, coolestdoctors.com. Is the activist or stento Migraine Protocol.com um, is my migraine webpage. And there is a nonprofit company that I run which um, receives donations, which then I use for uh, migraineurs. Like just last week, somebody joined a group who lost her job uh, during COVID and couldn't afford to buy, for example, her supplements. And so the nonprofit bought her the supplements. In another case, we may buy them the testing kits for blood glucose and blood ketones or buy them the book if they can't afford it. So that's the nonprofit part. Uh, That's tendermigrantprotocol.org. Uh, so anybody can contact me through that too, because it's a contact form at Twitter uh, on Twitter. I'm at migraine book. So pretty simple. It's uh, everywhere. And um, Instagram, uh, they can find me as Dr. Angela Stanton, all one word and LinkedIn, Angela, Angela A. Stanton, PhD, again, one word, and they can send me an email, which is Angela at migraine-book.com. So these are my contact info. Fabulous.
0: And we'll we'll include all that in the show notes as well. So
2: Thank you. So just before we finish, could you give us your three top tips? Well, one of them I just mentioned, which was whether it's a disease or not, right? So don't consider migraine to be a disease. So that's number one, because if you consider it as a disease, then you're going to feel sick for the rest of your life. But if you are considering it's just a different kind of opportunity that may actually benefit you, then you may have a different outlook. So migraine is not a disease. Then um, every time you feel a headache, consider whether it's a migraine or not, just based on that we talked about the prodroms and uh, that is on one side and and how it hurts. Because if it is not a migraine, but something else, then maybe you need to go to the doctor. If it's a migraine, you don't need to, but if it's something else and it's unusual, maybe you have to. So you need to be able to distinguish. And of course, uh, you need to always consider what you eat or what is the cause of migraine and so the cause is if you create an electrolyte imbalance and that the easiest to create that is by eating the wrong foods so if you have migraine your first question should be what have i eaten (laughs) that's it
0: yeah and uh, that's led me on to another question if you've got time sure. if you've actually the you you haven't been able to stop the migraine coming so you've now got the migraine coming is there anything you can do to help
2: Yes I'm glad you asked I forgot about the salt test okay so we do what's called the salt test so you take a little bit of salt not like a, a pinch or one eighth of a teaspoon just a little bit and you put it under your tongue And then you close your mouth. You don't talk, don't swallow, don't do anything. Just let it sort of dissolve and it will absorb. Because it's salt, it will naturally move immediately into your electrolyte, into your blood. And if you feel the prodrome sort of easing up, like, for example, I have every... I no longer have migraines because I avert all of them, avert all of them. But I still have prodrome several times a day. And so I just look in the mirror and see my eye. Oh, it's a little bit smaller than the other eye. So I by now know that i don't even have to do the salt test i just take salt but if i didn't know and i took salt if my eye becomes normal again i need more salt if it gets to be worse i need potassium so you have a way to actually judge if it's what we call a salt test
0: yeah great thank you so much for your time this has been fantastic i know it's a really long podcast and i and i hope our listeners really really enjoy it so thank you for your time well, thank
2: you. I really appreciate that you invited me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: I know I'm a bit biased because I think I, get, I have migraines, but I was fascinated with Angela's discussion. Since talking with Angela, I haven't had a migraine to notice whether I get pain anywhere else. As she said, the pain in the side of my face wasn't a migraine. I do get nauseous and sometimes physically sick and they always last for three days, which makes me think that I do have migraines. My beliefs were shattered about salt. I have yet to find any table salt that doesn't have sodium cyanoferrate 2 in the UK. So really do look at what's in your salt. I did find 100% kosher salt on Amazon, but it wasn't cheap. I bought the coarse salt crystals and then ground them up in my Thermomix. After the interview finished, during the middle of the night, I thought of a question I should have asked. You know, you always have those moments, don't you? And you think, ah, I should have asked that. As she spent over an hour and a half with me, I didn't want to get her to come back on so I emailed her and I asked if someone like me is not sure if they have migraines or some other form of headache is there any downside to increasing salt intake and Angela replied in fact my hubby who's not a migrainer I have him take salt with his water, only less than what a typical migrainer would take. So rather than taking an eighth of a teaspoon of salt with every water, he puts that much salt into every second cup. The way it helped him is amazing. Firstly, he used to have headaches and used to take some over-the-counter pain meds for it at least once a week. Since he started to salt his waters and I made him increase the amount of water he drinks as well, that bottle disappeared and has never been replaced. He has not taken a single over-the-counter medication for the pain for over two years. That's the time I pushed him on salt and increased water. And secondly, while he now drinks more water than ever before, his urinary frequency dropped He used to get up two to four times a night, and now there are nights he doesn't get up at all. And typically, the most times he gets up is once. So there is zero downside for anyone as long as they drink the right amount of water, which is calculated by weight. Males and females have different water content of the body, so different numbers are used in the same formula. Females. Your weight in pounds is multiplied by 0.55 is the minimum amount of water a day. Divide that by eight ounces to get the how many cups. And an eight ounce cup is 240 ml or so. So four cups makes a litre. For example, 150 pound female is 150 times 0.55 which is equal to 82.5 ounces of water minimum, which is 10 and a half cups a day. I round up to 11 minimum, and that's a cup short of 3 litres. Maximum is 150 ounces, and that's almost 19 cups a day, which is a cup short of 5 litres. Males, weight times 0.7 to 0.75 is, instead of 0.55. Use 0.7 for an average male and 0.75 for a sporty one with more muscles. The maximum water is weight in pounds as ounces. This is a standard formula used by nutritionists and it's perfect. I worked out that I needed three liters for my weight and I mostly drink that Sometimes it's around two and a half liters, but mostly three. So if you suffer from migraines or if you know anyone that suffers from migraines, I would highly recommend that you get Angela's book, Fighting the Migraine Epidemic, a complete guide to how to treat and prevent migraines without medicine. And I just need to clarify that in the interview, I said that with my CGM, my glucose was completely flat And that wasn't quite what I meant. I meant that I don't have the massive spikes, those highs and lows. It does go up slightly when I eat, but it's just a gentle hill rather than a high mountain with a deep valley. So to find the show notes, you can find them at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one, two, seven. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP.